I don't doubt that this is unpopular. It's unpopular here. Uh, this is the president didn't come here to, uh, as he said, run auto companies or bail out banks. Welcome to Planet Money. I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt in New York City. And I'm David Kestenbaum, also here in New York City. We are one big, happy Planet Money family this week in our New York bureau. Everybody is here. And David, I like getting to see your face over there. Same here. I actually I actually had no idea what your face looked like. A little fatter than you thought. No, it's, it's the blue hair that threw me. Yeah. <laughs> All right, David, this show, we know we promised we'd get to GM. We are going to do that a little later this week. We have some other stuff we want to get to first, like a little dance party remix of a piece you did, David. It has to do with a banker Boy Scout and how the government messed him over. That's how he feels, right? Right. But first, we have our Planet Money indicator. It was actually a tough pick today. There were new construction numbers, new housing numbers, but we're going to go with this, 87%. That's a tweet we got from a clown. (laughs) (laughs) She works in the Baltimore, D.C. area and 87%, that's how much business has dropped off in January to April. Which, of course, raises a lot of critical questions, such as what exactly (laughs) are the expenses involved in running a clown business? Right, and what is the plan B for a clown when business goes down? So, Caitlin Kenny just had to follow up on that tweet, and she did, and we're going to have that in a little bit. But first, the remix, David. This is is something that I always want to do with radio stories, particularly business and finance stories, where there's all these little details packed into four little minutes. And, you know, it's like you're listening to All Things Considered and this great story is playing and it's making sense. And then it just sort of is not. And well, thanks very much. There. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it makes sense, but there's a little detail that you just want to go, wait, wait, stop. Explain that. David, I loved your piece last week, but I was hoping you wouldn't mind playing the start stop game with me a little bit today. Yeah. For your fat face, Hannah, sure. <laughs> okay. Here we go. It's about this little bank. It took TARP money, decided it wanted to give it back, and the bad things that happened. Let me tell you about Centra Bank in West Virginia. Douglas Leach, the CEO, helped found the place back in 2000 by maxing out his credit cards and mortgaging his house. It is not a big multinational bank. It's a community bank. Leach says he's never done subprime loans. When we make a loan, uh, we can see the collateral, the uh, businesses, We see them open their doors and close their doors in the evening. We go to church, to school uh, with our neighbors, and uh, that's where our business has been done. Also, he promises if you call, an actual human being will answer before two rings. Thank you for calling Central Bank. This is Megan. How can I help you? That was one ring. So Centra was more than healthy, even with all the economic troubles. And when the government unveiled its TARP program to lend money to banks, Leach thought it sounded like a good idea. TARP was seen as a bailout for the big troubled banks, but it was also meant to help healthy banks keep lending. Receiving TARP funds was really like a a merit badge kind of in the Boy Scouts. It was being made available to only the strong banks, and you, in fact, uh, may not uh, be looked at quite as favorably if you didn't uh, receive the TARP. Centra filled out what Leach remembers as a three-page form, and pretty soon the Treasury Department wired the bank what amounted to a $15 million loan. The government got $15 million of preferred shares that paid 5% dividends. But okay, you can just think of it as a loan at 5%. The Treasury also got what are called warrants, and we'll get to those in a minute. 
But for the moment, everyone was happy. The bank had a little bigger cushion and more money to work with. But then, Leach says, Congress threatened to change the rules. There was talk about putting restrictions on how the TARP money could be used, restrictions on taking over other banks, for instance. So Leach called Treasury and said, Centra wanted out. They said, we understand. Uh, We're developing the process to um, exit the program. We don't have those details worked out. They told me that I was the first banker to call them. Centra wired back the $15 million plus a little interest to Treasury. That went fine. But then there was the issue of those warrants. Under many TARP contracts, the warrants give the government the option of buying stock in the bank at a set price. The idea was that if a bank recovered and its stock recovered, the taxpayers would make some money. But Centra Bank is a private bank. And the way these warrants were set up to protect the taxpayer, the warrants let the government pay $750 for preferred stock worth $750,000. Wait, okay, stop Wait. the tape there. Thanks. I have some questions, David. <laughs> we got a lot of questions about about this particular part, which is why would a bank ever enter into this kind of deal? It just sounds insane, right? Right. All right. So uh, we're going to play it out here. Okay. I get to be the small, charming bank owner. All right. I get to be the Treasury Department with the big wallet, which I'm taking out now. Uh, so I'm going to give you... Oh, look. I have $15 million. Here you go. Wow. All right. Cool. Uh, and you're going to have to pay me 5% interest on that. Okay. Sounds like a good deal. And you have to give me those warrants. Wait, I'm paying you interest on the loan. Isn't that enough? No, because we really want to protect the taxpayer. So I'm going to also get these warrants from you in here. I I made a a form for you to fill out spelling out the terms. Oh, great. Okay. It says uh, warrant in big capital letters. Mm -hmm. I, and you can write a fat face bank or whatever you're called. (laughs) All right. Uh, promise to give the Treasury uh, Department, that's me, um, okay, $1,000 All right. in preferred stock for $1. And then just sign it there. All right. Uh, so now uh, give me the warrant. And you're actually going to give me 1,000 of these. And, uh, okay, the deal's done. I'm actually going to use my warrant already. Uh, I will give you all these 750 warrants. And they're each a dollar. I have to pay a dollar. So I'll give you 750 bucks, and you have to give me $750,000 in preferred stock. Now, here is where it gets confusing because, David, it kind of seems like I'm getting ripped off here. Right. So why would a bank ever, ever do that, right? So, And why did so many banks do this? Because they did. And the reason it makes sense for the banks to do this is that the interest rate on the loan, on the $15 million, is so low that even though you fork over these warrants, which which is painful for you there, right? In the long run, over five years, the whole deal, it still it still makes sense for you because it works out to a $15 million loan at something like 6.5%. So it's a little higher, but it is still something that is worth doing well, for you. Well, unless I want to get out of it early. Right, unless you want to get out of it early because now it sucks for you, the bank, because you've got to buy back these warrants or the preferred stock that I, that I got from them. So this is why Douglas Leach at Centra Bank decided – Basically, look, government, you know, we only had this money for a matter of weeks. Now it looks like the terms of the deal might be changing and we want out. And here's how we think we should handle the warrants. We're going to buy them back from you, but we're not going to give you $750,000 for them. You only spent $750 for them. So that's what we'll give you back, 750 bucks. Two days later, the uh, lady that runs our wire transfer department came into me and said, Doug, we got a wire back from Treasury for $750. Uh, simultaneously, my assistant delivered to me uh, 
a letter from Treasury indicating that in order for us to exit the TARP program, the pathway was to wire $750,000 plus interest. So not $750, $750,000. Even though the bank had only held the money for six weeks, Centra had to pay the equivalent of a 60% annual interest rate on it. Ouch. If Centra had stayed in TARP longer, that loan would have actually been pretty cheap. But exiting early came with a real penalty. And in his case, Leach says, TARP backfired. It was supposed to give banks extra capital. But Centra lost $750,000. This happened two weeks ago, and Douglas Leach has been to Washington. He talked to West Virginia lawmakers, including Congresswoman Shelley Moore Capito. Capito says she's not sure what should be done. But certainly, what happened to Centra Bank feels unfair. And I think we need to look at it to make sure that we don't penalize people who are trying to do the right thing, pay the TARP money back, and in a lot of cases, our local lenders who are uh, very healthy. Centra was the first bank to fully pull out of TARP, but Douglas Leach says other bank CEOs have been calling him also wanting out. So it sounds like this is just not something that people anticipated, that no one thought about the, that the banks might want to get out of TARP early? I, I think these contracts were written up by people who, frankly, had not gotten a lot of sleep. I mean, remember, like, the country was in total crisis, right? Yeah. And they were trying to do a fair job and trying to protect the taxpayer. Uh, Douglas Leach, he, he says, you know, he, he doesn't actually blame Treasury or lawmakers. He says he's, this is kind of a glitch. Um, I mean, it, it is worth pointing out that it, it's probably not going to be so expensive for other banks, some other banks, to get out because Centra is a private bank, and so those warrants are for it's basically for a fixed amount of money, preferred shares. But for a publicly traded bank, uh, the warrants actually allow the government to buy regular old stock in the bank. And right now, those bank stocks have mostly gone down, right? So the warrants, they're worth a lot less. They're what, what people call underwater. And so it's going to be a little less painful for those publicly traded banks to buy them back from Treasury and get out of TARP. So, David, we've been talking about small banks who took TARP money, baby TARPs they're sometimes called. But, of course, the bulk of the money went to a small number of really big banks, right. Mom, lo- Mama TARPs. Mama TARPs. And the Mama TARPs, they would also, they're also saying, hey, we would like to get out of TARP. But there's a different catch here for them, which is that the government may not want them to give the money back. Right. It's like the hospital patient who's saying, I'm fine, I'm fine, I want to go home, let me out of here. And the government regulator is saying, whoa, lie back down. We're not sure you're out of the woods yet. Yeah. Or like maybe we're convinced you're going to live, but the economy's still sick. And sorry, bank, it depends on you. So this actually came up at a recent hearing by the Congressional Oversight Panel for TARP. Representative Jeb Henserling of Texas asked Tim Geithner, our Treasury Secretary, about a Wall Street Journal article in which Geithner indicated that the health of the banks was not going to be the only factor that determines whether they'll they'll be able to be allowed to repay the bailout money. Here's what Geithner said. Ultimately, though, we have to look at two things. One is, do the institutions themselves have enough capital to be able to lend? And does the system as a whole, is it working for the American people for recovery? And that's the standard we're going to to look at. But of course, nothing would make me happier than for that. I'm sorry, Mr. Secretary, my my time is limited at the moment. But just to understand then, there will be other considerations besides the individual institution's uh, financial stability. I'm, I'm a little confused on what Well, I'm not, I'm not sure I would, I would say it right that way. And as I said, this, this is a judgment that I don't make. It's a judgment that the federal banking agencies make under the conditions that were established in the Recovery Act. And they're in the process now, the Fed and the other agencies are in the process of working through how to make these judgments. But again, uh, the critical thing we care about 
is whether the system as a whole is in a position where it has the capacity to support the credit the recovery requires. That's the ultimate test. That's our Treasury Secretary, Tim Geithner. Hey, Hannah, I don't know how often this happens to you, but I get questions from people on these topics that I have been covering, and I just I don't know the answer. I mean, they sort of seem simple, and I feel like I should know the answer right away, but I don't. Yeah, it's funny, David. That actually never happens to me. <laughs> okay, so like, for instance, what are you talking about? Well, the other day someone asked us about the stress tests that the Treasury Department is conducting on the banks to see how healthy they are, and Laura Conaway... Uh, here was uh, the lucky party getting the question. Right. You're talking about those stress tests that we are expecting results on the country's 19 biggest banks on Thursday. Right. And the, what the person wanted to know has to do with toxic assets, the stuff that's on the bank's balance sheets that nobody wants to buy so no one can say for sure what they're worth. And if no one knows, how can anyone run a proper stress test? So say you have a toxic asset, the bank says it's worth 50 cents and the market says it's worth 25 cents. How are you supposed to value what it's worth in some dark, uncertain future? Right. So it sounded like uh, some kind of awful circular logic. So Laura called up Douglas Elliott, and he tracks banking for the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. The stress tests are going to require judgments to be made about the value of these assets that are hard to value. So it's a somewhat subjective call. You gather as much information as you can, and you form a judgment. I mean, anybody who has to value this would go through the same process with as much information as they could get. In this case, the regulators will have a ton of information, and hopefully they'll make a reasonable judgment. But there's still a range within which they could easily fall. Elliot says the folks from the Treasury used a mix of techniques to put a price on the loans. So for you super nerds out there, that means a little market to market, a little mark to model with a lean toward mark to model. Doug Elliott also said this other thing, which is that while we're all so obsessed with toxic assets, that's probably not the central place you need to be looking right now because he says that two thirds of the bank's losses are probably going to come from ordinary loans to businesses. Right, which is the bread and butter, the the loans in the banking system. Um, and, you know, you might have heard that we're in a big whopper of a recession. And in a recession, all sorts of loans go unpaid. The big categories that are the coming losses are commercial industrial loans, which is just the general category of most business loans, and commercial real estate loans. So, for instance, the IMF estimates have gone from a few percent losses in these categories to, I think they're at 7% now, maybe heading towards 10%. So there's something we can all look forward to. Hey, Hannah, let's get back to our Planet Money indicator, 87%, right? That is the amount a clown named Mandy Dalton says her work was down from January to April. So Mandy's been a professional clown for 27 years. It's been her main source of income for most of that time. But lately, she is starting to look around for other opportunities because, one, business hasn't been good. And two, it turns it's really physically rigorous, demanding career with all the, the juggling and the walking on stilts and the slipping on banana peels, you know. So Mandy told the Planet Money's Caitlin Kenny, business this year is the worst she has ever seen it. Look, we used to have an old saying, which is the best argument for, against, there, there are three great arguments against being a full-time entertainer, and that is January, February, and March. It's our down season naturally anyway. But this was unreal. This was no movement.
excitement. I had friends. I myself received no calls, no gigs in February. I had friends who received no calls in February. People who've been doing this for a long time have really established reputations and such. We just saw nothing. And then all of a sudden today, you know, just as things are picking up and I started seeing, you know, like some gigs coming in, April was looking okay, and but May was starting to actually look like kind of a normal May. All of a sudden, I'm getting calls today saying, well, we're not sure yet, but we think we might be canceling because we're not sure what's going to happen with the swine flu thing. And this is a public event. I understand it, but then another part of me is like, well, you know, what I've been hearing about the whole swine flu thing is that the regular flu ends up killing more people than have been infected worldwide, (laughs) just in the U.S. And so... Once again, I'm seeing, like, the economy is already bad, and now public officials are ramping up their preventative measures on this thing, but I'm not sure that that's really helping. So Mandy says these are the kind of events, you know, mainly municipalities and quasi-governmental organizations usually throw with, you know, big events where people are wondering whether or not they should have a large group of people in one small area. Um, and since she works in D.C., Baltimore, these events are really the bulk of her work. This is just one of those examples of how interconnected the economy is, right? We have a global pandemic that's hurting a small-time entertainer. And there's this other part to her story, which is that Mandy has another economic problem. She has a client who can't afford to pay her back. And the client is someone we've talked about on Planet Money, General Growth Properties. Aha. So, David, you did a whole story on them, right? Yeah. they are The General Growth Properties, the second largest mall owner in the United States, uh, they filed for bankruptcy protection because they had billions of dollars of loans that came due they could not refinance. So Mandy, it turns out, did a performance for General Growth Properties at a family fun day at one of the shopping malls in the Baltimore area. And she recently got a phone call from one of the people who arranged it saying she probably isn't going to see the money for it. I can just jump in with the other creditors, and when we're talking about something like general growth properties, the creditors' meeting for the bankruptcy is going to be in New York City, and I have to say, well, you know, frankly, I only charged him $200 for the gig. I have to weigh, do I want to spend the money that it's going to take me to go up to New York for an overnight to sit in on the creditors' meeting where other people are going to be there for you know, if not millions, certainly in the hundreds of thousands of dollars looking for payment from them. And I'm supposed to go to the judge, you know, in charge of um, the bankruptcy and say, um, I want my $200 and I'm going to get pennies on the dollar. I I mean, you you can understand it's not... It, it's not the kind of thing that I'm jumping up and down about getting out there to do, you know. I mean, I, I could still do it out of principle. I have some friends I've talked to about this who, you know, a magician friend of mine, definitely. He's in the, oh, whatever it takes, however much, even if you go in the hole on it, you should go up there and be just out of principle. And I'm looking at it going, I I wish I could, but the future is also not looking so great. And maybe I want to save that money that, you know, and just kind of hate to say it, let them off the hook. 
And so Mandy says, by the way, if you're thinking $200 is a lot for a clown show, she says, actually, when you factor in the time getting to gigs and prepping for them, it works out to something more like uh, it, she's getting paid something like $15 an hour. That is without expenses, things like costumes and props that really aren't cheap. Clown shoes, man, clown shoes, they're expensive. Clown shoes will run you about 200 300 bucks a pair easy. Wow, because they're so big and floppy? Yeah, well, mine aren't as big and floppy. Mine are a little pretty and dainty. Um, I don't go for the big floppy thing as much as I used to. I used to have the big water ski type <laughs> clown shoes. Why are they so expensive? Uh, well, they had most of the time they're custom made. Oh, gotcha. You know, people don't have a big. The people who make shoes like this, they don't have a big inventory of big feet that they can fit. <laughs> right. So uh, they try to keep their inventory low, and they just make them one at a time per order. Yeah. It's it's pretty expensive. Um, the makeup, the makeup's not too bad as far as expensive goes. But I do a lot of face painting, so I go through a lot more makeup than most people. Oh, there's another expense: liability insurance. Clowns have to co- carry liability insurance. Really? Yeah. Yep. If you're like me, you've been doing it for so long, and you're doing these. Um, uh, gigs out in the community and you're doing them for shopping malls and shopping centers and you know public squares and stuff like that they have liability requirements it's not like you they'll just take anybody they want to know that you're covered at least for a million dollars you know if they get hit with something um, so yeah clowns have to carry liability insurance so do magicians so do jugglers how much nearly does that, everybody who does this kind how of much thing. does that cost you uh, it, that luckily, because of the group I belong to, it's it's relatively inexpensive. Uh, it's for the entire year. Uh, you know, a million dollar insurance policy costs around two hundred and fifteen bucks for the entire year, and it covers me for like you know, like if a uh, I'm juggling and for some reason a ball strays and hits somebody on the head. You know, oh God forbid that should happen. I'm a lot better than that, really. Um, but God forbid something like that should happen, I am covered for it. So and not only is Mandy hurting, but that also means that the clown shoe manufacturer is hurting and the clown insurer and the makeup manufacturer and I'm sure many, many more people. I, I feel like this is going to be your follow-up to the economics of pirates. <laughs> Okay, for now, I think we're out. Devin Dwyer's got a great Planet Money video on our blog. It's hard finding a job. It's also hard finding a volunteer gig. There are too many other people wanting to volunteer right now, which is a good and a bad thing and a weird thing for nonprofits. Check it out on our blog at npr.org slash money. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Klana Joffe-Walt. Thanks for listening. 